The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. You're listening to Confidential Brief live on Chai FM, 101.9 FM in Johannesburg, streaming worldwide on ChaiFM.com. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. It's just after the midday mark on this, the 29th of May, 2023. In a couple of minutes, I'm joined by Craig Pedersen. He is a well-known digital forensics practitioner and fraud and cybercrime investigator from a firm known as TCG Digital Forensics, which has a national footprint, although they are based down in Cape Town. So he'll be joining us all the way from that wonderful city. I was listening to our sting um, as the show came on a few minutes ago, and the show's been running for 10 years. It was originally called Corruption Busters, and then we expanded it to, to include fraud, um, scams, issues that were impacting on the everyday South Africans' lives. But when you listen to the sting for Confidential Brief, it talks about how corruption has impacted on everybody's life and in every aspect of their life. It's so very true. When one looks at what's coming out of Hammond's Kral and now the Vol in respect of 22 people plus that have passed away um, from a preventable disease, cholera, one looks at why that happened, and it's corruption. When one looks at the fact that we're suffering through load shedding and the big question is why, the answer is corruption. When we see cases not being solved, we think that it could be as a result of corruption, and it is. It's just a different kind of corruption. By not giving the state the necessary resources to enable them to fight crime is a form of corruption. It's a corruption on the people of South Africa. It's a corruption on all of us. And it's just very sad that this show has been going for 10 years, and all we've discussed is fraud and corruption and how it impacts the average South African. And what makes it particularly sad is it seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. We saw it with our electricity. We're seeing it now with our water. We've seen it with social services. We've seen it with the lack of service delivery to those that are most deserving. And we've seen an expansion in the division between those that have and those that don't have. That's left us with the biggest disparity of wealth in the world. It really is a subject that needs to be spoken about more often. It's something that we shouldn't be ignoring. It's something that we should be thinking about when we go to the ballot box in 2024. I'd like to remind you the views expressed on the show aren't necessarily those of myself or that of Chai FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You're listening to Confidential Brief live in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM, broadcasting worldwide on chaifm.com. My guest today is Craig Pedersen. He is a digital forensics practitioner, a fraud and cybercrime investigator, and an open source intelligence specialist. Craig, a very good afternoon to you. Chad, great to be on the show again. Thanks so much for having me, bud. Craig, um, I started off, you know, you get so used to a sting that you actually don't listen to it. Um, but today I listened to the sting, uh, our show sting, and it speaks about corruption, how it impacts on every one of our lives. And we've been preaching you and I from the same hymn book for a long time. People are only now getting to understand how corruption is impacted on their daily life because of load shedding and because of the water situation. 
Why do you think South Africans have been so complacent up until now, considering that corruption has been in the background for so long? Yeah, Chad, I think there's two key elements to to that debate. The the first one in board investigation we refer to as the tone at the top. And what we mean by that is every organization, every entity, every country takes its lead from the top of the pyramid. And if your leadership at the top is ethical, sound, responsible, and accountable, well, that obviously trickles down and creates a societal norm. Um, if you took a simple, simplistic example, company structure, CEO at the top, staff at the bottom, every day the CEO comes in and goes to stationary cupboard takes out a pile of stuff, puts it in his car for his kids and for use at home. So he doesn't buy stationery, he grabs it from the cupboard. Um, he goes to the company bar, stocks his personal bar from the company bar. His petty cash is, oh, well, that's his petty cash, never mind. Now, the fact that he's the CEO does give him some privileges and liberty, one would think, but within reason. But what happens is it becomes endemic. When you do it enough, it's going to be normalized. And the lower tiers of staff are going to start to think, well, if it's okay for him, I suppose it's okay for me. And before you know it, you have a bit of a free-for-all. If the tone at the top is not correct, it's going to trickle down to the lower layers. So that's the one element. The second is, I think, in South Africa, we we don't understand and pay enough attention to normalization. And it's become quite normal for us to pick up a weekend newspaper or a daily newspaper and see a couple of dead bodies on the front page covered by a few blankets and page on. Go to any first world country, change the masthead on that newspaper with the local one and try it, run it there. You'll be closed down within a day. Have the people been notified? Why do you have to show photos of dead bodies on the road? It's insensitive and it's really crass. It's not necessary. But we've become so used to it that we're almost deadened to it. And that normalization trickles throughout society when it comes to things like corruption, where it's, oh, well, it's just the way it is. And if somebody asks you for a 100 bucks while you're filling in a piece of government paperwork, be it a passport or whatever application, it's normalized. It's, oh, well, you know, this is Africa, that's the way it goes. It only stops when we want it to stop. So what do we do to make it stop? You and I are at the forefront of a of a battle. We know the realities of fraud and corruption. South Africa is catching up to that realization, but you made a very valid point. The majority of our fellow countrymen are numb. They're desensitized to the fact that crime is actually winning. There's a low-intensity war. There's not enough soldiers on the right. What do we do to expose the wrong? Because there's just so much of it being exposed that people just turn the pages. I, I think, uh, Chad, I'd love to say there's a simplistic answer, something we could do right now that will make that change. And, yes, there are little things that we can do that make that change. Um, but that change is going to come from the top. And it's got to be visible, it's got to be tangible, and it's got to be sincere. We need to see ethical leadership within the political spheres and the governance in general. 
We don't need people writing more rules and more laws. That we don't need. We just need people to abide by the ones that are already there. And accountability. There's an enormous issue in South Africa with accountability. We see ministers that are found to be incompetent and or corrupt bounce to other departments. Then they bounce to offshore posts. And they're just moved around within the same sort of pool. They're not actually held to account and said, okay, your conduct is not acceptable. You no longer are a public servant because that is the term that's missing. Uh, when I grew up, people who worked for the government were known as public servants. Now, we've forgotten the public part, and we've definitely forgotten the servant part. When we get to the position we are now, where a, a regular rank-and-file minister needs to travel in a blue-light convoy and be assigned a protective detail of eight or ten people, I mean, how unpopular is he? Would it not be easier just to do the job and you know, do it with integrity and have the people follow and support you rather than deride and detract from what you're doing. And that is an ethical challenge that we have to face in South Africa. What you've raised about the Blue Light Brigades is something I want to pick up on a little bit later in the show. It's the allocation of funds for resources are they being allocated correctly? Are they being utilized correctly? And are the public seeing the benefit of this? You're listening to Confidential Brief today. We're in conversation with Craig Pedersen. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You're listening to Confidential Brief. My guest today is Craig Pedersen. He's joining us all the way from Cape Town. He is a digital fraud specialist. He's also an open source intelligence specialist. And we're chatting today about some of the problems facing our country. Craig, when you started out in this field, did you expect the exponential growth that the private sector would see in respect to some of the matters that you've had, you investigated some of the biggest matters in South Africa. I'm not going to go into details because some of them are still in court. But did you expect that the private sector would ever play such a massive role, considering that a lot of the work that you do and other investigators do should actually be done by the state? And I have to admit, no. Um, if I look at back at the case files that we've worked with for the last couple of years, um, I think when I started out, I never had any possible idea that we would end up working actively on such big cases because, as you say, those are, in theory, the domain of the state. Um, Even currently, we, we work on a lot of cases that are criminal matters by nature that should be investigated with the state, and we end up... Uh, facilitating the process and helping with certain elements of that. I don't think I ever expected the amounts would be as big as they are, that we'd be running cases that run into the billions, and you know, it's multiple cases that stretch that far. And, yeah, of course, you, know, you bear in mind I'm an old man. I've been in this for 20-odd years plus, so... 20-odd years ago, you know, a billion rand was just an impossible figure that was a country's budget, not the amount of money you stole. Um, so I suppose that's got an erosive effect on it as well, to a degree. But 
you know, when we look at the the size and the scale of some of the cases that have filtered through South Africa and started here over the years, um, they just get bigger and bigger. They get bigger and bigger and they get more and more complicated over time. And I think a lot of that, it's very easy to point fingers at the state and say, well, where are the policing resources? But as you know, that's a two-sided coin. You can have the policing resources, but they're only going to take you as far as an arrest and a investigation. You then have to have a court system that actually dovetails correctly and adequately with that. And as much as we have frustrations within the policing environment and the resourcing that they don't have and should have and the progress that we feel they should be making in certain areas, we have the same frustration within the legal system where we're just seeing cases that are taking five, ten years to get on the roll and they should be dealt with expeditiously. I mean, what's the expression, justice delayed is justice denied. And it sets a bad tone. It does. Uh, you and I are familiar with the complexities and the machinations of the system and the life of a docket and the back and forth that goes with it and the amount of consideration that comes in from the NPA perspective before the case goes through to court. Then there's still issues like... Um, the seizure of stolen funds and the redistribution of funds, it's, it's an enormously complex process. It's not as simple as that guy there is a clown, he's guilty, put him in jail, give us back our money. You know, that, w- that would be pretty cool, but it's not going to happen. Um, and in many ways, our legal system has become a bit hamstrung. We do not have enough court hours. We do not have courts that are dedicated to issues like cybercrime that are familiar with the dynamics of cybercrime and the CCA and the Prevention and Harassment Act and are ready to hear those facts. So you actually delay the process because every court you've got to appear in, you have to assume that you need to start from the fundamentals of what is an IP address and then move on from there. And it just takes too long. You made me smile because we we – come from a very similar environment. We work in a very similar environment. I remember our first big case, 380 million, and within months our next big case was 500 million, and now we in the Bs, like you said. Um, it's unusual now to see a big case in the Ms. And for me, it's been in very quick succession that we've gone from the tens of millions to the hundreds of millions to the billions, and now we're talking tens of billions. And it's frightening. Because, like you said, a lot of it has moved into a different space that a lot of people haven't kept up with. And you're very fortunate because you're in a space where you can add value to any investigation because the majority of these cases, there's a digital footprint. Has the state kept abreast with the need to keep abreast of all these changes, or are they relying more on the private sector to assist them? And has this, and I'm sorry, it's a long-winded question, but it's important to understand for our listeners, have they embraced the role that the private sector can play? Oh, okay, complex question. Let's break that one apart. Let's be blunt. There's always going to be a divide between state and private sector. The state will always say, but we represent the state, therefore we know better. The private sector will always say, well, we've got more resources and ability, so we know better. And 
pardon the expression, but that pissing context will always be there. It's never going to go away. We have transcended that, in all fairness, in, I'd say, probably the last five to ten years, where the level of collegial interactions between the cybercrime lab stop, stop with INSAPS and the cybercrime functional components with INSAPS with the private sector is light years ahead of it where it would be or it used to be. And we've actually got some pretty good relationships within those structures where SAPS does have good people. They're motivated. They want to do the work. They want to take more cases. They want to get the results. Um, there's just not enough of them. And if I'm perfectly blunt about it, it's probably not a, a very popular opinion, but the re reality of this is absolutely simplistic. After the demise of the Scorpions, that set back high-technology crime investigation in South Africa a number of years, and a lot of the resources left and went elsewhere. And that's had to be built up gradually over time. And you can't just turn out a cybercrime investigator. It's not that simple. It's years and years worth of training um, and detailed technical training to keep and retain those skills as well. You've got to retrain them on a regular basis. And the void exists there where, to my mind, SAPS just does not have the volume of resources that it needs. And as you know, my favorite example is if a cash and transit, a curbside robbery took place outside my door now and a million rand was lost to a couple of guys. Within half an hour, there's going to be a marked vehicle on scene. There's going to be a forensics guy doing the photography. They're going to tag, bag, and mark that scene. They're going to start canvassing for witnesses, pulling video footage, etc. So there's a large amount of activity because of the severity of the crime. Meanwhile, right outside is a guy sitting who's just had a million rand lifted out of his computer in a business email compromise. What does he get as a member of our society? What does he get compared to the cash and transit company? Well, he gets nothing. He gets to write his own statement. He gets to print his own supporting documentation. He gets to explain it himself. He's then going to notify the bank, then go to the station and hope somebody at the charge office can take that complaint from him. Hopefully within 24 hours, he's got a cash number that can then be given to the bank who can start the process from their side. But he gets nothing. There is no service delivery to the victims of cybercrime. And that's one of my biggest bugbears is that we're not gaining momentum and moving forwards toward that. We should be. You know, by now, if we could just say, well, in each province, there are five stations that are cybercrime competent. It's not great, but it's a start. We're not even there yet. And it, it worries me that the levels of organized cybercrime we've seen in South Africa are growing exponentially every single day. Syndicates are really loving being here, and that's not being addressed. So very important takeaways there, especially the analogy between a crime that takes place on the pavement where you have all services responding compared to what's now become far bigger crimes going 
not undetected, but just basically no enthusiasm, no want. And is it the fault of the authorities or is it the fact that they don't have enough people who are capable? And, of course, Craig raised a very valid point. We should have reporting nodals, in-person stations where they are capacitated to be able to understand a digital crime, a cyber crime, a crime that takes place and that involves millions, if not billions, of rands. We'll be back straight after this. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Can't believe it's already past the half past midday mark. Time flies when you're talking to somebody who knows his stuff, and that person happens to be Craig Pedersen from TCG Digital Forensics down in Cape Town. Craig, we've spoken about the issues, and I want to use actual examples now and understand what your your thoughts are on it. We've heard so much about the director, um espionage that took place where he engaged with organizations to engage in what, what can only be described as some form of um, intelligence gathering. And this seems to have backfired spectacularly. But, but, and there's a huge but here, are more and more people using organizations to do the job of the authorities and are more organizations taking advantage of the fact that they may not have the necessary skill set but make promises and commitments that they can't keep. Hmm. Okay. That's a tricky one. Um, look, let's break it down. Let's be honest. Um, private companies have used intelligence as a methodology for decades. It's not new. You know, uh, often it's just referred to as competitive market research, uh, market positioning studies, uh, feasibility studies. You know, the, you can call the output whatever you want, but it still becomes intelligence. Your intelligence is a pretty straightforward formula to work with. You take information, you give it structure, it becomes data. You take data, you give it context, it becomes intelligence. You take intelligence and you cross-verify it and you have actionable intelligence. So it's a pretty linear path and it's appropriate to so much. Um, you, you, it's not com- it's not even conceivable. It would be childish to think that companies don't. You know, if you take a leading pharmaceutical company that's got retail pharmacies throughout the country, if you don't think, if you think they don't do research on the mean average price of a bottle of Panado before they put it on special next month, I mean, they'd be stupid. They could be putting something on special that doesn't need to go on special. They could be underselling themselves in certain market and overselling. I mean, that's ridiculous. You have to. Because of the evolution that we started the discussion with, where we have this broad swelling of crime and it's become endemic, it's a daily thing, uh, companies have to react to that. You know, companies understand baseline profit, that's it. But when baseline profit becomes affected by issues of crime and criminality and it's not being attended to expeditiously by the state, well, what can I tell you? Uh, you, you you've got to make your own arrangements. You can't best the future of your company. And, well, we hope that the state will be able to address this. Same as the load shedding crisis. You've got to have those internal mechanisms. So... 
I, do, I don't think what Durator did with creating that capacity is anything different from what dozens and hundreds of other companies around South Africa do at all. It just had a very particular leaning, and in his case, it's a leaning that's going to be unpopular in certain quarters. But it would be horrendously cavalier to think that the CEO of ESCOM doesn't want to be plugged into what's happening on the ground. Are we being targeted by syndicates? You know, if the CEO didn't want to explore those questions, I'd want to explore his competence. So you've raised a very valid point. Um, we as investigators start from an intelligence perspective. Sometimes we ask to package it and make it evidentiary. It gets handed as a product to the authorities. Hopefully by that stage it becomes prosecutorial guided. But there is an intelligence element in what we do as investigators. The second part of the question is, are there organizations, though, that are are seeing the situation and are taking advantage of it for their own nefarious means. Um, are we seeing people monetizing and promising a product that may not necessarily be able to be delivered? Uh, without physically handling and seeing the report, it's, it's difficult to speculate. Are there guys out there around the country that purport and touch to do intelligence work, etc. Yeah, plenty. We've come across plenty of them. They're all over the security industry. Whether they can deliver the product or not, that's a different, different kettle of fish. Because uh, uh, a full-blown, mature, and proper intelligence structure, you've got to have the word on the ground as well in different communities and different areas. You have to have people that can task sources to get access to on-the-ground information. You've then got to back that up with an analyst who really knows what he's doing and can look at the lateral impact, the broader impact, and the direction that it can follow. And there are as many people doing the work as there are purporting to do the work. So one's got to be really careful with who's appointed, what their scope and mandate is, and make sure that the mandate also doesn't fall foul of the law. Um, you, you've still got to work within normal commercial boundaries. Um, but, but it's certainly nothing new. You know, we, we've had risk evaluation companies on the continent for like 50, 60 years. I mean, it's Africa. You evaluate the risk all the time, whether it's business infrastructural risk, the risk to the safety of your staff. What CEO would ever want to put his staff out in the field, going to work if he wasn't aware of what risks they're, they're up against on a day-to-day -day basis. And if the information is not forthcoming from the state organs as it should be, well, they're going to make a plan and they're going to get there out. Um, I take that point, and I think it's a very valid point. A lot of South Africans seem to be forgetting that, um, like you said, intelligence is something that is necessary, it's needed, no CEE worth his salt wouldn't have access to some kind of information. I want to stay on the topic of intelligence when we come back and speak more about your passion, which is open source intelligence and the book that you launched. And if that book is still available, I'd love for, for our, our, our listeners to know more about that. So when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about open source intelligence compared to the normal traditional intelligence that we speak about, which is, which could be human intelligence, signal intelligence, et cetera. 
But thank you for that, Craig. It puts it into perspective in a way that a lot of people fail to understand this whole derator scenario. And that narrative that's been played now is similar to the narrative in 2014 with the so-called SARS rogue spy unit. It's just to give the intelligence gathering a bad name simply because some of what came out of it may have been actionable and may not have been in the best interest of certain individuals. You're listening to Confidential Brief. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. We're chatting today to Craig Pedersen. He is a digital forensics practitioner, a fraud and cybercrime investigator, and also an author. And his book is one of the go-to books in South Africa when it comes to a topic known as OSINT. Um, Craig, first of all, we've chatted a bit about your book in the past, and the book just carries on being used as a reference guide, which is incredible because there's not much being written when it comes to the skills required or some of the tools that are available to investigate some of the crimes. What was your thinking behind writing the book, and what's the reception been? Uh, Chad, I, I think what, what was behind the book was always the desire to take the conventional investigator and introduce him to a new technological set of tools that can be used to further what he's doing within the parameters, I mean, of whatever his technical background is. So it was there to help bridge that divide between being a conventional investigator and a digital investigator. The the simple reality of cybercrime these days is that you don't have a crime scene. The truck outside the road there, that's a crime scene. Somebody's data being stolen or an invoice being intercepted, well, where's the crime scene? The scene is there. It's just in a digital form, and you've got to learn to engage and work in that space in order to extract the additional information and the clues that are sitting there. Um, a lot of what we do within open source intelligence is derived from Lockhart's principle. So Lockhart's principle is what belies all forensic sciences in that every contact leaves a trace. We've all got CSI. If you walk past a doorway and you bump it, you leave traces of your shirt on the doorway and of the doorway on your shirt. So every point of contact leaves some form of a trace. Now, the digital world is the same. Every time you tap away on a keyboard, there's an element of traceability to it on your computer, on your network, on your service provider's network, on an, and on whichever party or website you're reaching. Um, it's about using the technology that's out there to stitch together those clues and also simple things like profiling and tracking and tracing suspects and auditing their lifestyle versus their income. That's where open source intelligence really comes into it. And the best or the one example I, example I use in training is the price of oranges. The price of oranges on the market during in Paris during the Second World War was used as a barometer to test the effectiveness of air raids. Instead of sending bombers out to fly the same path that yesterday's bombers flew to see did we manage to disrupt the supply lines of the trains or not, 
I mean, that would be pretty stupid and high risk. So instead, they'd go down to the market in Paris, find out what the price of oranges were. If the supply lines were disrupted, the price went up. If supply was free-flowing, the price went down. A simple piece of information is given context, and then it takes on an intelligence value. And when it's analyzed, you can see the ebb and flow. Uh, in, the, in the late 1800s, Bismarck did the same thing. Uh, he had his sources all over the ports, and they'd buy the daily newspaper, they'd check the manifest, and they'd look at the crew that were going to be crewing different ships. And they'd collect information from the newspapers to work out, is that ship transporting munitions, weapons, food, supplies? And that's how they would plot the supply lines. So we use the same theories and methodologies, but with digital information. Absolutely fascinating. And I'm going to be looking up a lot of that because it, it stands to reason that sometimes what's staring you in the face can be use, useful and actionable. And people tend to overlook this. They tend to want to go far too deep without actually understanding that there are other ways of obtaining useful information. Craig, in closing, um, TCD Digital Forensics based down in Cape Town, you have a, a countrywide footprint. We've spoken about the fact that you've been involved in some of the bigger cases in the country, and people can research and they'll see which of those cases there are. We don't want to go into detail just yet. we actually got a show lined up with you where we're going to be discussing one of these massive schemes that, that took place in South Africa. But what does TCG do at this present moment? What can people reach out to you for? Had our, if we were to call them our bread and butter lines, your day-to-day work, um, it's a little bit difficult. We have a lab facility in Cape Town and a lab facility in Pretoria where we deal with other investigators, auditors, accountants, advocates, attorneys, and they'll bring digital media to us, laptops, cell phones, etc. We'll perform the analysis in the lab environment to give them the results to go and continue and further the investigation. So that that's the one avenue of the business. The other is we do active cybercrime investigation, whether it's a financial transaction scheme, an investment scheme, online dating, uh, invoice interception, which is obviously quite the range in South Africa. Uh, we investigate cybercrimes, and we work pretty closely with SAPs to ensure that our work aligns with theirs, and that we're able to avoid duplication of work and just help them on the way and get those going. Um, and then finally, obviously, we do open source intelligence where we I spend a lot of time, as you know, teaching. Um, and I run courses in Cape Town, Pretoria. We teach law enforcement groups as well as civilian and commercial groups where we've worked with a lot of really good of top 100 South African companies to develop their own internal research abilities uh, to further their market position and their ability to investigate. As you know, retail stock theft, you know, loss adjustment, etc. Those are big industries, and there's some really, really great investigative skills in those industries that we help with the training to take them the next level and to get them to cybercrime and open source as well. Craig, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm looking so forward to our next conversation, which is going to be case specific. 
Um, and I know that it's, it's currently in flux and that's why we can't speak about case specific. But I think our listeners today got a bit of insight into your world. And it's a very important world, especially considering the analogy you gave us of a physical crime scene taking place compared to the crime scene in the digital world. There isn't really a difference. Yes, the one may be more tangible and more overly overt, whereas the other is is hidden in cyberspace, but both should be treated exactly the same, and that is where the state may be at this point lacking. For what you're doing in terms of the teaching, I thank you. And, of course, for our listeners that want to reach out, the company is TCG Digital Forensics. They're based out of Cape Town with a footprint up in Gauteng as well. And the man to speak to is Craig Pedersen. Craig, thank you so much for today. Thanks so much. Always great chatting to you. Craig Pedersen is a digital forensics practitioner. He's also a fraud and cybercrime investigator and an open source intelligence specialist. We will be uploading the podcast to the Chai FM website a little bit later today. It will also be shared on our socials, both on LinkedIn as well as Facebook. If you need to reach out, it's Craig Pedersen from TCG Digital Forensics. I want to thank you for joining us on this Monday. As per usual, my warning stays the same. Be careful out there. If it's too good to be true, well then, start considering that perhaps that is the case. Stay safe. This is Chad Thomas signing off.